The Bible clearly warns us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And John chapter 8, verse 44 reminds us that he is the father of lies. The devil is very crafty. He will use people or mass things to make it look like it's from God and lead many astray. We can see this from all the false prophets who have led many people astray. Marshall Applewhite Jr. was an American cult leader who founded what became known as Heaven's Gate. In 1997, 39 members of the Heaven's Gate cult committed mass suicide, believing their souls would be transported to a spaceship traveling the Hale-Bopp Comet. Marshall Applewhite believed he was sent by Jesus Christ. David Koresh was the American leader of the Branch Davidian religious sect, believing himself to be its final prophet, leading to the death of more than 80 in Waco, Texas. Jesus warned against false prophets in Matthew chapter 7, pointing out that it can lead to the downfall of numerous people. Paul called men like these children of the devil, for such men are false prophets, deceitful workers masquerading as apostles of Christ. And it is no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades today as an angel of light. Therefore, Satan's strategy is to often approach us under the guise of good to get us to embrace his lies. It will require great discernment and wisdom on our part to know what is of God and what is from the evil one. As we continue our sermon series, Voyager, studying the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, as recorded in the book of Acts. We now come to Acts chapter 19. As we study this chapter, we want to learn five biblical principles for how to discern what is of God and what is of the evil one and how we are to respond. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 19 as we take a look at verses 1 to 41. Acts chapter 19 verses 1 to 41 as we learn how to discern and respond to certain religious practices. Now, as you're turning to this passage, by way of reminder, while on his third missionary journey, the book of Acts tells us that Paul revisited some of the churches he had founded and the cities he had visited on his second missionary journey. But the focus of what will be recorded on Paul's third journey will be about his time in Ephesus. Ephesus was the largest and most important commerce city in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey but it was also a center for pagan and occultic practices. And this is where we pick up our study in verses 1 to 7. I read now verses 1 to 7. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, in the John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. The Bible tells us that while in Ephesus, Paul met 12 men who seemed to be men seeking the truth. They had believed in the message of John the Baptist, but were not aware of the Savior Jesus Christ. 
when told about Jesus, they came to faith in Jesus and were baptized as an outward sign of their inward faith. When the Holy Spirit came upon them, they were able to exhibit some of the sign gifts of the Holy Spirit, like speaking a known language that they had not previously studied for, and speaking forth the Word of God, signifying that they were indeed genuine believers. This would be the last reference to speaking in tongues in the book of Acts, as we believe that some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit to the church have ceased to be given once the church has been established. Now, what I want you to notice is that Paul and those in the early church did not focus so much on the miraculous, the experiential, and the supernatural, but placed greater emphasis and importance on the preaching, teaching, and the understanding of God's Word. After this encounter, look what Paul does in verses 8 to 12. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Verse 8 tells us, Paul returned back to preaching, teaching, reasoning, and persuading the Ephesians about God through His Word, whether it was in a religious setting like in the synagogue or in a secular setting like the school of Tyrannus. And this took place for two years, which resulted in many in Asia Minor hearing the Word of God. Because the city of Ephesus was a center of satanic and demonic activity with magicians and other practitioners of the dark arts running around the city, verses 11 and 12 tell us that Paul was able to do some unusual miracles, such as articles of his clothing, were able to heal and cast out demons. This is certainly not prescriptive, but only descriptive. And these unique and unusual miracles, as the Bible indicated it was, were to show that God's power is stronger than Satan's power. You see, being a created being, Satan can never be more powerful than the Creator. Even Pharaoh's magicians were only able to replicate three of God's miracles through Moses in the book of Exodus, and not the other ones. It may have been similar in this case, where Paul's miracles could not be emulated. So to get the attention of the Ephesians and to show the ultimate power of the living God, these miracles had to be unique and rise above what the other pagan magicians could do. But again, as I've said many times, miracles only authenticated the message that was being presented. And from the text, it is evident that the miracles are secondary to the message. Therefore, any true miracle from the living God should always point us back to God and His Word. And this is our first biblical principle for discerning the supernatural. True miracles from God should always point us back to God and His Word. True miracles from God should always point us back to God and His Word. If the supernatural or miracles bring more attention to the person doing it or performing it, or the fascination is on the miracle itself 
more than to the God which allowed the miracle to happen, then that miracle is problematic. Just like today, with many of the so-called faith healers out there, they seem to point to themselves as the enabler of healing miracles and not to God. And if they were truly gifted with healing powers, shouldn't they be daily in the hospitals trying to heal everyone? But yet, they are not. Anyway, just like when we see a magician perform an illusion or a magic show, we revere and admire and are amazed at the skill of the illusionist. Or when we are awed by the beauty of something in nature, we praise the God of creation. In the same way, if it is a true miracle from God, then God alone should receive the glory and praise, and it should draw us closer to Him and His Word. Psalm chapter 119, verse 105 reminds us, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. My friends, by comparing miracles and experiences with God's Word, it can help evaluate whether the supernatural acts and messages people claim come from the divine are indeed consistent with the character of the God of the Bible and His divine will. I read now verses 13 and 14. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. The Bible tells us that certain pagan magicians and Jewish exorcists saw the miraculous power and authority over evil spirits that came when Paul used the name of Jesus. And so they used the same words to cast out demons as well. But look what happened when they did that, verses 15 and 17. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. The Bible tells us it wasn't the formulaic use of Jesus' name or repeating any sequence of words that brought the power of the living God. Because the demon who knew they were not believers in the living Savior Jesus acknowledged it knew Jesus and it knew the Apostle Paul, but it didn't recognize the authority of the sons of Sceva. At which point, the demon-possessed man attacked the sons of Sceva and beat them to the point where they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. My friends, this is a reminder that there is no power in chance, repetition of words and phrases, just reading a prayer over and over again, unless the one who says it really believes in their heart what they are saying, and if it is in line with God's will. This incident resulted in the great respect and healthy fear among the Ephesians for the power of Jesus. This illustrates something very important for us to understand, that even Satan and the demonic realm acknowledge and submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. And this is our second biblical principle when it comes to understanding the supernatural and the spirit realm. Biblical principle number two, the spirit realm acknowledges and submits to the authority of Jesus Christ. The spirit realm acknowledges and submits to the authority of Jesus Christ. In the Bible, 
whenever Jesus himself or his apostles confront demons, the demons always submit to his authority. Like in Luke chapter 8, when they beg Jesus not to send them into the demon jail known as the abyss. James chapter 2 verse 19 reminds us, You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. My friends, the demons tremble at the ultimate authority of Jesus. Satan is not omniscient. He is not omnipresent. He is not omnipotent. And he is not eternal. Therefore, he also is limited and submits to the authority of Jesus. With this truth, therefore, if we align ourselves with Christ, if we draw near to him, then we can find protection and help against the demonic spiritual realm. We will have nothing to fear because we can put on the full armor of God as Paul writes about to the Ephesians in chapter 6 of his letter to them. You know, there are a lot of Christians who still live in fear of Satan and demons. And while we should not be involved at all in the dark arts and demonic and occultic practices, if we know Jesus and draw near to Him, then we are protected as the entire spirit realm submits to His authority. We don't need to live in fear because nothing will happen to us that God doesn't allow. We don't need to worry about hexes or curses or whatever enchantments may be placed on us knowingly or unknowingly because as a child of God sealed by the Holy Spirit, those things cannot harm us if God doesn't allow it. Therefore, this truth should cause us to draw closer to Christ who holds supreme authority over the spirit realm. I read now verses 18 to 20. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. The Bible tells us that those in Ephesus who placed their trust in Jesus confessed and repented of their sins, specifically of their involvement in the occult. Those who practiced sorcery took all of their occultic magic books and burned the books publicly as a sign that they now permanently rejected the contents of these books and their old occultic practices. Now, this does not mean all pagan and occultic things must be burned for it to lose its demonic powers as fire doesn't have that power over the demonic realm. But if ridding yourself of such things, just make sure it cannot be retrieved and reused to show forth an irreversible rejection of these things. And this is our third biblical principle as it relates to spiritual discernment. Biblical principle number three, Christians need to rid themselves of demonic things and repent of occultic practices. Christians need to rid themselves of demonic things and repent of occultic practices. Now, one would think this is almost a given for followers of Jesus Christ, that we don't associate with anything demonic or occultic, but sometimes we aren't very discerning. Whether it's reading or following horoscopes, engaging in superstitious actions, or having objects or symbols that promote Satan, witchcraft, or demons, we need to examine our lives to see if we need to rid ourselves of these things. Remember what 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 tells us, 
How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? In the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord was very clear with the people of Israel about their association with pagan things brought into the house. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 25 to 26. You shall burn the carved images of their gods with fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. Nor shall you bring an abomination into your house, lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it, for it is an accursed thing. The Bible is very clear. We need to get rid of demonic things and repent of occultic practices. My friends, be very careful with what you bring into your house or have in your home. Of course, Christians should not have occultic books or objects in their possession or anything that deals with witchcraft, fortune-telling, and sorcery, as well as demonic and pagan religions. All of these things are an abomination to the Lord and do not honor and glorify Him. Also, that which is often presented as harmless decorations or cultural and religious artifacts in the form of idols, statues, figurines, or works of art may have a demonic presence associated with it. So be very careful, as you would not want to inadvertently bring an evil spirit into your home. Of course, not all cultural and religious objects would have a demon associated with it. But then again, why take the chance? As followers of Jesus Christ, we should listen to what the Scriptures remind us and warn us about. Spiritual warfare is very real. Let us not take it for granted. Like the Ephesian Christians, as Christ's followers, we need to rid ourselves of demonic things and repent of any occultic practices. This is something the Bible makes very clear. I read now verses 21 and 28. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. The Bible tells us that Christianity had made a great impact in Ephesus and all throughout Asia Minor. Many were turning away from their idolatrous ways to turn to Christ, and in the process got rid of their occultic objects. 
This was problematic for some of the local craftsmen who made their money by making silver shrines containing images of the Ephesian goddess Artemis, also called Diana. Now, this Diana was different from the Roman goddess Diana, but was an Asian fertility goddess known to aid women in childbirth and a goddess of animals. But because of Christianity's spread and impact, interest and sales of things associated with Artemis or Diana declined, and Demetrius, the leader of the silversmith guild, took issue with this. He gathered fellow craftsmen and told them that their livelihood was at stake because of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. But Demetrius also made it something bigger when he told them it also brought shame to the great temple of Artemis. This reasoning would have hit a nerve with his fellow guild members and the public at large because the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and could accommodate more than 25,000 people and a source of great civic pride. Do you see what Demetrius does? His real motive for opposing Christianity was because of money. But he used the bigger argument, which was that Christianity was an affront to the worship of the great goddess Diana, bringing in a religious angle in case the money angle seemed petty. This should remind us that when people oppose us in our Christian faith, sometimes the stated reason hides a deeper, more selfish reason and insecurity. You know, it's interesting that the only two times of Gentile opposition to Christianity as recorded in the book of Acts, here and in Acts chapter 16, was when someone's personal profit was being affected because of Christianity. The point I want to make is this. Any religion or practice that puts money as a primary concern is to be avoided. Christianity is about a relationship with the Heavenly Father through what His Son, Jesus Christ, did on the cross. And that access to God comes from the free gift of salvation that Christ offers. We cannot buy our way into heaven. We cannot buy eternal life. We cannot earn our way into heaven. In fact, we don't have to give any money to the church if we don't want, and it will not cause us to lose our salvation. We're not required to buy or possess any objects, trinkets, amulets, statues, crosses, Bibles, pictures, and other so-called Christian objects to gain better access to God or to have eternal life. Not having those things do not put our salvation into question. You see, all the requirements for salvation was paid for and satisfied at the cross by Jesus Christ. That's why he cried out, Tetelestai, meaning it is finished. What was finished? The work of salvation has been completed on the cross. And the only thing now we have to do is to appropriate that free gift of salvation by placing our trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. However, sadly, there are false teachers out there who advocate that one must give more money to God through them to earn more of God's grace, which is ridiculous because by definition, grace cannot be earned. And then there are those who say we must give more money to God through them as the only way for us to show that we have lots of faith in God. And yet, that would be teaching inconsistent with what the Bible says, as there are many ways to show one's faith in God. The Bible teaches that in giving, it is to be volitional 
and should be cheerfully and willingly done as an expression of our gratitude and worship of our Lord. You know, in our culture, I know that the tiyak-tiyam, or the funeral store, doesn't like Christian funerals because they don't make much money off of us, because they can't sell us the paper money to fold and burn. They can't sell us the fake miniature houses and paper cars that need to be displayed during the wake. And they can't sell us the various cloth and clothing that need to be worn by the deceased and the relatives. To the uninformed Christian, the funeral store manager will actually say that these things are Chinese customary things that should be bought to show respect, when in reality they have Buddhistic origins in order to sell more funeral-related things to us. For them, it's just about the money. And this is our fourth biblical principle when it comes to discernment. Biblical principle number four. Religious practices that have money as a primary concern are to be avoided. Religious practices that have money as a primary concern are to be avoided. This does not mean that as Christians, we are to avoid talking about money or giving generously. As followers of Christ, we are to be good stewards of that which God has entrusted to us. Money is important for daily living and helps in the propagation of the gospel. But money and the love of money should never be a primary driver or primary concern for any religious practice. And if you feel that it's always about the money, then stay away because the stated reason for action is hiding a deeper selfish motive. Chuck Bentley of Crown Financial writes, I frequently encounter two extreme teachings about money and finances. One is the prosperity gospel, which promotes living by certain rules and giving generously to a church or ministry of a teacher to bring financial blessing. In other words, if you do this, you'll get that. Some teachers are complete con artists, while others are sincere, but sincerely wrong. They emphasize worldly wealth instead of the true riches of God. It is a lie that takes advantage of many sincere followers. In the other camp, and equally wrong, are teachers of the poverty gospel. They swing in the extreme opposite direction, teaching that material possessions are evil, rich people are ungodly, and that self-denial is a means to earn righteousness in God's eyes. Many in the world are enslaved by one of these extreme teachings. They don't know that God is the owner and provider of all things, and we are His stewards. We're to be faithful with the little or the abundance He provides, characterized by what we give, not what we get. I read now verses 29 to 34. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go in to the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. 
The Bible tells us that Demetrius and his accusations riled up the entire city, and the mob filled up the great theater in Ephesus, which could seat up to 50,000 people. They seized two of Paul's traveling companions, while Paul, who was probably in another part of Ephesus, was advised by his friends not to go into the theater. There's a bit of comedy and irony in verse 32, as we're told that the mob was confused. Many of them didn't know what was the issue. They just joined the crowds and festivities, and they didn't even know why they were there. When a local Jew named Alexander came forward to explain that the Jews, unlike Christians, were not the cause of the silversmith business being affected and trying to distinguish the two religious groups, the Ephesians didn't care. They lumped Jews and Christians together as both advocated for a monotheistic God and shouted for two hours, great as Diana of the Ephesians, throwing their allegiance and civic pride to the patron God of the city. Look with me at verses 35 to 41. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The Bible tells us the city clerk, much like a local mayor, calmed the crowds by telling the people that no one was really going to undermine the belief in Artemis, since Ephesus was the center of worship for Artemis. He also said that Gaius and Aristarchus had done nothing wrong, and if they had a case, the right venue was in the courts with the proconsuls deciding and not through this mob action. He finally warned the people that what they were doing was not right, and they might get a provincial reprimand. After these arguments, the mob dispersed. What we can see characterizing this pagan mob was deception, confusion, and disorderly conduct. It was a mess, and it took someone with a sense of decorum and sensibility to calm the worked-up mob. At the end... Nothing was accomplished in all of this. And this points to our fifth biblical principle as it relates to discerning the supernatural. Biblical principle number five, keep away from spiritual practices that deceive, confuse, and lack order. Keep away from spiritual practices that deceive, confuse, and lack order. The Bible tells us very clearly that God is not a God of confusion, but a God of order. In fact, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. That's why we're cautioned in the Bible that even in the exercise of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, it should not be chaotic, but conducted in an orderly manner. My friends, if something looks deceptive or causes more confusion and is full of disorder, 
it is better to avoid these things as it doesn't align with the God of order. If you attend a religious service or gathering and it seems out of control, chaotic, or even offensive, and you are very confused and skeptical by what is being taught, then that should be a warning sign that something is off and perhaps not from God. Ed Skidmore writes, Today, the hot new attraction in the religious world among many young people is the cluster of religions often called paganism or neo-paganism. Neo-pagans claim that they are in no way associated with Satanism and that Christian groups make the mistake of associating them with Satanists erroneously. They claim that their religion is earth-centered and involves a return to ancient practices that date before the start of Christianity. Their focus is not on Satan, but on magical arts and the worship of several nature gods rather than one god. The fact is that neo-paganism is simply a return to the paganism and polytheism that was rampant in the Old Testament times and was condemned by God in the Bible as an evil abomination. The pagans of that time worshipped idols, participated in human sacrifices, promoted sexual promiscuity and perversity, and participated in various occult practices, including conjuring up spirits. Pagans believe that no one belief system is correct and that each person should have the freedom to choose the path that is right for them. Most pagan groups do not possess a strict set of dogma allowing members to follow whatever set of beliefs they wish apart from strongly held biblical beliefs, of course. They stress love for and kinship with nature with a reverence for the life force and the ever-renewing cycles of life and death. They have a strong leaning towards the concept of goddess and God as the expression of divine reality, like most Old Testament pagan religions did. Why is there a resurgence of these kinds of religions today? Charlotte Hardman, in a book she wrote on paganism, says, The interest in paganism today may be interpreted as a response to an increased dissatisfaction with the way the world is going ecologically, spiritually, and materially. People are disillusioned by mainstream religion and the realization that materialism leaves an eternal emptiness. And yet, my friends, how sad that knowing that materialism isn't the answer, this generation, like the previous ones, instead of turning to the one true God and His Word, so many, including Christians, fall and are falling into the lies of Satan who deceives, masquerading as an angel of light. This calls for a generation, young and old, who are able to wisely discern the miraculous, the supernatural, and various religious and spiritual practices through a biblical framework and act accordingly by remembering, number one, true miracles from God should always point us back to God and His Word. Number two, the spirit realm acknowledges and submits to the authority of Jesus Christ. Number three, Christians need to rid themselves of demonic things and repent of occultic practices. Number four, Religious practices that have money as a primary concern are to be avoided. And number five, we are to keep away from spiritual practices that deceive, confuse, and lack order. 
May the Lord grant wisdom and discernment through the light of God's Word in these dark times. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. I pray that all of us would have wisdom and discernment, that everything we hear, we read, we watch, and we experience will go through the filter of the Scriptures to know that it is from You and not from the evil one masquerading as an angel of light. Open our minds and our hearts to deceitful practices that maybe we're caught up into. Help us to take a self-examination of our life and our lifestyle to see if we have anything in our homes that displease you, if we are living a lifestyle that is inconsistent with what you teach in your word. Help us truly to be the salt and light of this generation different from the world, so that we can show the light of Jesus Christ in this dark world. Enlighten us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.